You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Chargeback Prevention Strategies You Aren't Using But Should Be, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911 and RevGuard. I'd like to introduce our panelists. We've got Ben Scranter, who is the Client Relations Director at Chargebacks 911, Jared Wright, who is the Marketing Director at Chargebacks 911, and Walter Wong, who is the Senior VP of Business Development at RevGuard. And uh, with that, Ben and Jared, take it away. Great. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Crow. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming to the webinar. Um, the, when we talk about chargeback prevention, the first thing that at Chargeback 911 we believe is important to understand is uh, the actual sources of chargebacks. And um, in almost every case, you can, you can put all chargebacks into one of three buckets. Um, criminal fraud, which includes stolen credit cards, identity theft, things like that. Uh, merchant error, which can include anything from unshipped items, false advertising, essentially anything where the merchant is primarily at fault. And the third bucket would be friendly fraud, uh, which in simplest of terms means that the consumer filed an illegitimate chargeback, either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, what we often see is that the first step that a business takes to resolve an issue surrounding chargebacks is addressing criminal fraud. It seems like the lowest hanging fruit and the most obvious cause of the problem. What we found time and time again in working with merchants is that chargeback sources are actually a little more like this. And in most cases, criminal fraud accounts for a much smaller number of the overall chargebacks. Um, businesses that implement friction fraud filters, or high friction fraud filters, uh, may negatively impacting their bottom line without effectively addressing their chargeback issue. Um, now, we aren't saying that criminal fraud isn't a real issue. Anytime you accept transactions in a card not present environment, criminal fraud is, should be a concern. And um, we think it's important that merchants, if they have a criminal fraud issue, that they, they take steps to address it. Um, we just encourage you to make sure that you have a clear understanding of the real reasons you're receiving chargebacks. Um, one of the products that we have, and, and Ben may actually talk about this a little bit later, is intelligent source detection. And, and that's a product that, that we utilize on behalf of our customers to help them identify the sources of their chargebacks so that they can craft a chargeback prevention strategy that addresses the, the, the root cause of the chargebacks that they're receiving. Now, while this image is a little bit clear, it's not the most accurate either. Um, this image probably tells a little bit tells the story a little bit better. Um, that's because most chargebacks contain some element of merchant error and some element of friendly fraud. Um, so if we rename, rename the extreme cases merchant fraud and chargeback fraud and understand that everything else is essentially an improperly redressed dispute between the consumer and the merchant. Filing a chargeback was not the right thing for the consumer to do, um, but there may have also been something that the merchant could do um, to prevent that chargeback. And if we take that, that Venn diagram and we kind of uh, look at it as a spectrum, it'll give you an even clearer understanding of um, uh, um, what I'm talking about. So on the far right side, we have um, chargeback fraud. And this is the most extreme case. This is, for example, a consumer files a chargeback in an attempt to get something for free. 
Um, and then on the far other end of the spectrum, we have the other extreme case, which is merchant fraud. And uh, that could be anything the merchant processes a credit card without providing a product or a service. Um, everything else in between is to one degree or another uh, a bit of a gray area. Um, so everything essentially on the left of this spectrum is our chargebacks that could be prevented. There are chargebacks um, that if the, the you know, merchant took specific actions, they could potentially prevent or mitigate those chargebacks. And then everything on the right hand of the spectrum are chargebacks that a, uh, a merchant is very likely to, to win if they dispute the chargeback with their bank. Um, something that you'll notice in this is that there's a fairly, fairly large area where that overlaps. Um, and what I like to, the, the example I like to give for this is uh, if you have recurring billing. Something that a merchant can do to reduce the number of chargebacks that they receive from a refer, recurring billing program is to remind the uh, consumers two or three days ahead of the billing cycle. Um, now, of course, in a lot of cases with a lot of business models, if you're reminding somebody that you're going to be billing them in a few days, um, you, you're going to, to receive uh, a lot more cancellations. So um, the, the point that I want to bring up is that uh, every merchant needs to make a decision as to uh, how devoted they're going to be to preventing chargebacks um, because there are certain situations where disputing a chargeback um, would, would be the, the better option. Um, now, Walter, did you, you had something that maybe you could add to this? Um, sure, sure. Thanks, Jared, and hello, everybody. Um, Jared, the point that you brought up in terms of things that merchants could be doing better uh, to reduce chargebacks, um, it really brings to mind uh, a really important operational detail specifically around customer service. So if there's a customer looking to take a cancellation option, they're looking for a refund, especially in recurring billing like you mentioned, uh, it's very important that the operational details and customer service is readily available to handle that inquiry but because if they're not, uh, it increases the risk substantially of chargebacks. So in uh, a few minutes, I'll be able to go into a little more detail on that. But um, in a nutshell, just wanted to highlight that. Great. Okay. The uh, next chargeback prevention tip um, that a lot of people overlook because it's not directly related to the transaction is um, online reputation. Um, something that we see over and over again is that when a merchant has a poor online reputation, they see a, a lot more chargebacks. Um, and, th and this is for a simple reason, and it's that the negative opinions of others will convince cardholders th that are on the verge of dissatisfaction that you are an untrustworthy merchant and filing a chargeback is the logical solution. Um, after all, they've obviously been ripped off just like everybody else. Um, improving and maintaining your online re reputation um, means fewer chargebacks will be issued. At the end of the day, that's what it means. Um, and one of the things that we like to recommend to merchants is to be proactive with this, because once you have a uh, online reputation issue, it's much more difficult to to address. Um, so, so doing things proactively, making sure that you know you have positive information about your business and about your company out online, so that you know when somebody does. Um, ultimately become dissatisfied and, and file a complaint with an online um, uh, website, you, you already have enough information online and enough positive reviews online that that negative review won't have as much of an impact. There, 
there are also a lot of chargeback prevention tools out there. Um, there are a lot of tools that address uh, preventing criminal fraud chargebacks. Um, we're not really going to talk about those today. Um, the two tools that we have that help merchants prevent chargebacks the best are uh, chargeback alerts. And if you're not familiar with those, essentially those are a tool that um, for certain transactions, when someone files a chargeback, um, the merchant can be notified by the bank directly. And as long as the merchant is willing to refund the purchase, then the merchant can avoid the chargeback. So in instances where your, your chargeback threshold is higher than you'd like it to be and, and you just need to reduce the total percentage of chargebacks, chargeback alerts can be a, a, a very valuable tool. Um, another product that we have specifically is um, the affiliate fraud alerts. Um, and the way that this product works in a nutshell is um, we scrub affiliate traffic. So if affiliate uh, purchases that are originate from affiliate traffic and we, tr and we identify uh, fraudulent behavior. So, so things that indicate that this is a, uh, a affiliate fraud transaction. And this gives you the ability to refund the transaction and avoid shipping the product um, and, and avoid the, the chargeback altogether. And the last tip, and this is, this is a big one, it's something that I think a lot of merchants overlook. And the, the tip is be willing to fight. Um, you know, something that, that we see is when we take on a client and we begin to dispute successfully their chargebacks, um, we see the total chargeback to transaction ratio decrease. And we didn't understand why at first, um, but something that we found out is that at a lot of these banks, the chargeback department is a fairly small company. And it's very easy to develop a reputation within the, those chargeback departments. Um, so if you're, if you're a company and you develop a reputation as being um, someone that's going to dispute the chargebacks that are filed against you, um, those chargeback departments may um, exercise slightly more diligence when their consumers want to file a chargeback. And this could be something as simple as asking, did you contact the merchant? Um, so, and also the opposite can be true. If um, you develop a reputation for just accepting chargebacks, then you develop a reputation for being presumed guilty. And some, some negative things can happen there. We've seen some in instances where um, issuing banks will be proactive in, um, you know, trying to file chargebacks on behalf of their consumers. So um, it, it's important. It's important if you're receiving chargebacks due to friendly fraud. That, um, that you represent the chargebacks and that you dispute them. Um, you know, it, it, it'll reduce the total number of chargebacks that you have. All right, that's it for me. Thanks, guys. Very good. Thanks, Jared. And uh, hello again, everybody. Uh, Walter Long here with, uh, with RevGuard. Uh, we're going to be kind of highlighting some operational details and best practices that you could utilize uh, being on the merchant side to help reduce uh, chargebacks. So the way that I like to kick things off is uh, really putting yourself in the, uh, in the shoes of your customer. A lot of what I'm going to be talking about is the overall customer experience. So uh, Jared, you had highlighted uh, recurring billing and subscription type advertisers. And what we see overwhelmingly is that um, many of those types of customers that call or interact online are customers that are looking to take some sort of cancellation or refund option. So what happens as a result is if there's a phone number that's associated 
with customer service, when that customer picks up the phone and calls in, they typically have a heightened sense of anxiety because if they're over the age of 18, that they know that once they, le they reach that live agent, they know that the live agent's job is essentially to talk them out of canceling, talk them out of getting a refund. So with that built-up anxiety, they're essentially preparing for a fight or some sort of confrontation, which um, typically doesn't go well. So from the merchant perspective, it's very, very important to provide a variety of communication options um, and also incorporate automation, which I'll go over here in a minute, to allow customers to choose the way that they want to communicate with you, the merchant. So technology is very important, but it's not always really the best way to communicate with customers. So let me first kind of illustrate what is not very effective. Uh, we call um, a dummy IVR an automated phone environment that offers very little to no personalization or customization line or some sort of other company, you may have been greeted by one of these systems and it's often in a pretty frustrating experience. So this is where you might be screaming operator or something along those lines just to try and get out of that particular situation. And the often uh, negative impact that we have here is that some merchants use automation to eliminate hold times but it actually increases frustration and increases hold times in waiting for that live rep. Um, so Jared and Ben, I know that you guys have data and correlations between chargebacks and customer service handling mechanisms. Do you have any specific data points to bring up? Yeah, I just wanted to touch on a few things. This is Ben. Hi, everyone. Um, so we see a very strong correlation between customer service performance and chargeback risk. 81% um, of chargebacks are filed purely out of convenience by the cardholder. And what we know about consumers is they're going to take the path of least resistance when trying to achieve a specific outcome. And in this case, it's a refund or a cancellation. So we've got a few things going on. We've got that trend on the consumer side. And then on the payment side, um, issuers such as Capital One and Citibank are clearly, with the growth of e-commerce, dealing with a lot more dispute inquiries from cardholders than they historically had when they were dealing with point-of-sale transactions. When they've got that increase in influx and the inquiries from cardholders, they have to deal with those disputes quicker, which often means a lack of due diligence and um, a lack of friction put in place before the cardholder is allowed to file a chargeback. Capital One and Citibank, for example, Capital One, you can dispute a charge on your statement via a hyperlink, and CityLink on their mobile app have now got um, a way to dispute cases through their technology. So when it's that easy to, to cancel or it's that easy to file a chargeback and get a refund through that mechanism using technology, customer service has to adapt to that. So what we track on the, on the chargeback side is looking at, for example, the percentage of chargebacks that are filed when customer contact to customer service already, already existed. So how many customers are actually filing a chargeback after they spoke to customer service? And because we have a lot of data, we can analyze, okay, once it breaches a certain threshold, it's a key indicator to us 
that um, customer service are maybe being too stringent in their cancellation policy. So I think that ties in nicely, Walter, with what, what RevGuards do in terms of being able to cancel in a way that makes it easy for the cardholder, especially with some of these developing technologies being used by the issuers to handle those disputes and those cancellations quicker. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point, Ben. Thanks for bringing that up. And, uh, you know, certainly there are examples of bad technology and good technology. Uh, this is an example of uh, a bad technology, certainly. Um, and of course, a real big driver of uh, of chargebacks is you know just simply not getting in front of those customers. So a big data point that we look at uh, is really hold times. If your customers are waiting, and again they have that sense of anxiety, they're not looking forward to speaking with an agent. So if uh, you on the merchant side you have hold times of uh, you know a range of three to ten minutes, you can expect a twenty percent abandon rate. So what that means is that one out of every five phone calls that come in, these are callers that are attempting to communicate, attempting to resolve their issue with you, the merchant, but they're hanging up before an agent picks up the phone. So uh, Ben, just like you mentioned, um, you know, the tendency of those particular customers to go online and click that dispute my charge link or just pick up, hang up and pick up the phone and call their bank, it goes up considerably, uh, providing a really big risk. All right, so, oops. There we go. Okay, so um, what is a good example of technology? Um, so we at RevGuard um, saw that an IVR environment, uh, while oftentimes is negative, uh, can be actually a preferred way that customers can like to communicate and it can drive uh, very good metrics and also reduce chargebacks. Um, the key here is to essentially marry technology with live agents. Live agents are always important because you'll always have customers, um, at least a segment of customers that prefer to deal with a live agent to get their needs addressed. What we found is that by incorporating three important characteristics within an IVR or automated phone environment, it goes a long way in terms of reducing chargebacks and also the value of the customers that you've paid so much money to acquire. So those three characteristics include uh, personalization, customization, and optimization. So uh, imagine within an automated phone environment if you as a merchant can access and utilize the data that exists within your CRM to greet the customer by name and eliminate hold times for about 80% of all callers. So we're saying, hello, Jane Smith, thank you for calling product name as that personalization component. Um, from there, we could look at customization. So what that means is looking at characteristics of different types of customers that you have and providing customized and relevant options related to that customer. So if the customer is calling within a trial period, you can communicate something along the lines of, hey, we see that you are 10 days into your 15-day free trial. Uh, what would you like to do? And you could present relevant options based on that specific uh, status, life cycle uh, status. It could be um, the way that you know you had 
the, or the, the marketing method that you would use to acquire the customer, particular sub-ID that they're coming from, et cetera, really customize those options. And then uh, the final component is very important. This is a level of optimization or A-B split testing. So every merchant, every successful merchant that I've come across uh, ever has always deployed A-B split testing to optimize marketing messages or landing pages to acquire customers. Imagine taking that same powerful A-B split testing methodology and deploying that in the back end. So split testing different save sale options, uh, different handling techniques, uh, and in doing that, you'd be able to have uh, scientific reasoning and statistical analysis that would back up what particular actions or handling mechanisms uh, have the greatest impact in not only reducing chargebacks, but also increasing that customer lifetime value. Okay? So it's really those three components that really make a world of difference uh, within an automated phone environment. All right. Um, so here are some of the benefits. Um, so while you're providing a better customer experience and one that's preferred, about 75% of the time over speaking with live agents, uh, you'll also be rewarded because customers would appreciate the fact that uh, they don't have to speak with a representative if they don't want to in order to take a cancellation option. Um, by providing a communication mechanism that they prefer, you'll see your chargebacks go down um, because it's that preferred communication piece and it's also eliminating hold times. It's getting in front of customers, reducing that level of anxiety, and it's also increasing the likelihood that that customer will take uh, some sort of safe sale or even a revenue generating um, action uh, that benefits you, the merchant, as well. Um, second point is that, you know, 75% of customers, uh, you know, prefer personalized automated IVR over speaking to an, to an agent. Um, one of the big things that we do here at RevGuard, uh, when we recognize who that customer is and we present applicable options, we give them a choice. We say, if you'd like to select some options that would allow you to interact with our technology, press one or press two. Or if you want to speak to an agent, you could do so very easily by pressing zero we find that only 25% of the time do the callers press zero and go down that path. They're saying, wow, uh, the system knows who I am. Uh, they're recognizing details about my account. They know what I want to do. This is going to be quick and easy. So it increases the level of, of willingness to interact with the technology quite a bit. Um, it also leads to the validity um, of the offer overall. So you know, we're presenting those specific details making it very, very easy, and uh, customers appreciate that. And then the final point is compliance, which was brought up a little bit earlier. Um, in a live agent environment, there's always the risk of um, an agent maybe misrepresenting a particular product, maybe getting too aggressive on save sale handling and techniques. Uh, within automated technology, you know that whatever strips that are put together that is the script that the customer will hear without deviation. And similarly, the notes that are updated within the CRM related to what the customer had taken, what actions they had taken, that is all consistent and uniform across the board. So it takes a lot of guesswork uh, and also risk really out of the equation.
And I highlighted earlier that it's important to provide um, options to allow customers to interact with you, the merchant. So um, one of the big things that uh, we look at is uh, incorporating the ability to customers um, or for customers to be able to update their account within a web environment. So um, Jared, you brought up the point earlier that it's now very easy for customers to initiate a dispute or a chargeback just simply by logging on to Chase or Bank of America, um, you know, and just kind of clicking that button. So for those customers that would uh, prefer to interact on the web, it's very important to make that available. So that could be as simple as a um, customer service or a contact us link on your homepage and customers can enter in either a confirmation number or just personal information about themselves uh, to take different actions. And there's technology that exists that allow you as a merchant uh, to split test and segment and um, create cohorts of different customers to achieve that level of optimization uh, and offer saves through that process. So specifically within the web, I have um, a couple of points here is 12% uh, of people, they don't want to call in. They would just rather uh, interact through the web. Again, it's that heightened sense of anxiety. They don't feel like speaking with a live agent. Or maybe it's two in the morning and uh, someone finally gets around to checking their credit card statement. They can't really talk on their phone because their family's asleep. They will actively look for other ways to communicate with you, the merchant. All right. Um, there's also typically um, a higher single contact resolution rate. So with phone calls, the tendency is to uh, oftentimes make multiple phone calls to make sure that a particular action has gone through. Or if uh, a caller reaches a live representative, they're not getting the options that they're looking for. Sometimes they might call in. Uh, so that is very expensive for a merchant, those repeat contact rates. So you're able to um, eliminate that quite a bit by offering that web option. Um, and also, as a result, um, again, your personalizing messaging, creating customized uh, customer cohorts, uh, you are rewarded for that uh, with uh, about an 8% increased customer lifetime value. Again, these are, you need to look at customer interactions as a way to generate revenue through safe sales, reduce refund rates, those types of things, which can all be accomplished within a web environment. All right, so in terms of the web and also within an IVR environment, when you personalize, customize, and optimize those options, you are uh, helping your customer by providing that customer preferred avenue, um, and your customers will be rewarding you. Um, your customer service costs will go down overall um, within your live rep environment. Um, your refunds will go down, you'll be able to keep more of the money that you charge your customers in your pocket. Your save sale revenue will also go up because you're optimizing the handling. And big theme, especially within this webinar, is chargebacks. You'd be able to eliminate about 23% of your chargebacks because you're providing that preferred communication piece and you're optimizing the path. So you're reducing chargebacks and you're also increasing the value of your customers by about 43%. So truly getting the best of both worlds here. It's very, very important. All 
Okay, guys, it looks like we have gotten to the question section, and I think what we'll do here is uh, take a minute to uh, gather some questions. I know there are a couple of great ones that came in before. Um, a common question that I wind up getting is, will this presentation be available? Yes, this presentation will absolutely be available and will be actually emailed to your recording in case you want to review and go back. Um, okay, so we've got a question here from David. Uh, the question is, are there differences in the way that chargebacks are handled in the U.S. versus Europe? Uh, ben and Jared, do you, you guys want to take this one? Sure. Yeah, I mean, um, there's certainly going to be more standardization that we're going to see. Um, I think especially since Visa combined uh, in terms of Europe and, and the USA. Um, but there's definitely some key differences as well. I mean, one very interesting difference actually, uh, it's solely on MasterCard currently. This is a scheme introduced in October last year. It's called the dispute administration fee. So in Europe currently, if you receive a chargeback on a MasterCard transaction, then the acquirer is currently fined 15 euros, which is passed to the merchant. If the merchant then disputes that chargeback, then the acquirer is paid 30 euros, which obviously is passed on to the merchant again, and if that, which they keep if the dispute is won. The issuer is then fined 30 euros. So it's a clear intent from MasterCard to, one, encourage merchants to dispute chargebacks if they have strong evidence and they feel that they can win the chargeback, because there's a financial incentive to do that. But secondly, there's a fine to the issuer now if they were to file a chargeback incorrectly obviously presupposing that the merchant did dispute it, but if they filed an incorrect chargeback against the merchant, they're now fined. So they're now penalized as the issuer for filing chargebacks that should never have been chargebacks in the first place, providing that merchants sit up and say, okay, well, the chargeback shouldn't have been in the first place. I've got strong evidence to dispute it here. I'm going to dispute it and have a high likelihood of winning it, and the issuer is then going to get fined. So it's a very, very forward-thinking move from MasterCard. It's encouraging more and more merchants to dispute illegitimately char filed chargebacks, which are um, up 41% year-on-year in terms of friendly fraud. Whilst it's only present in Europe right now, as I say, there is going to become more standardization across the pond between the card schemes. And typically, when Europe is used as a testing ground, like the schemes did with EMV, it is rolled out in Northern America. So if this is a successful scheme, it's likely to be rolled out over here. And it's, it's, it should have a, a good effect on reducing frivolously filed chargebacks by issuers. And also, there's a strong encouragement for merchants to dispute chargebacks and do so very well. All right, great. Uh, we have a question from Daniel. And the question is, what is the process that is followed when a second chargeback is filed? Um, do you want to take that, Ben? Yeah, sure. So um, a second chargeback is really a, um, it's almost like a slang phrase. It's used for to describe a pre-arbitration phase with Visa um, and an arbitration phase with MasterCard of the chargeback dispute cycle. So the dispute cycle goes, um, uh, the merchant receives the chargeback. Obviously, the cardholder calls the issuer. The issuer files a chargeback. Um, the merchant receives the chargeback. Let's say the merchant disputes the chargeback. So they dispute the chargeback, and they reverse it. So they win the dispute. The pre-arbitration phase is the next phase available to the cardholder so that they can argue the case, basically, again, that the merchant put forward. So the merchant sent their representment, and the cardholder then has another bite at the cherry, if you like. They can go back, and they can further dispute what the merchant said in their representment. 
Now, it's only available to the cardholder in certain instances, so you shouldn't see a high instance of pre-arbitration. Um, it's available if the issuer changed the reason code, for example. Um, it's available if the issuer obtained new information from the cardholder, or if the documentation presented in the representment wasn't compelling enough or the evidence supported wasn't correct for the, the reason code of the chargeback. So they're not desirable for a merchant. It's unlikely that merchants will dispute many, if any of them, because there's fees associated with disputing pre-arbitration. So the key here is in providing a very compelling first representment document to discourage the issuer from having that ability to file a pre-arbitration. Excellent. Uh, we have a question from Rachel. Um, what is the best way to prevent re recurring payment chargebacks? Walter, do you want to handle this one? Uh, sure. Thanks, Grill. Um, again, it really goes back to that uh, personalization, customization, and you know, optimization. So, uh, with recurring payment, um, you know, merchants, uh, there's usually defined uh, statuses or customer cohorts that you could look at specific to the life cycle of that particular customer. So, for example, um, if you're running a, a trial uh, campaign that has some sort of continuity or recurring billing after that, uh, a very simple thing that you could do uh, in leveraging technology is identifying the different types of life cycles. So one example would be you know, looking at those customers that are specifically within their trial period. Um, they haven't been billed yet, but now they're calling in and they're interacting. Uh, there are a number of tactics and best practices that, uh, that we've seen uh, over the past seven years in doing this uh, that you can kind of actively present to the customer uh, to not only generate additional revenue but also lower chargebacks. Um, for those customers that have been billed, maybe it's um, a cycle one billing. Uh, they just saw their first rebill. Uh, we see a large percentage of chargebacks uh, occur on that particular charge. So handling those customers and then also looking at the marketing messaging and the traffic channel, the marketing channel that they came in from, um, you know, you could leverage data to determine, okay, well, is this a high-risk customer or is this a lower-risk customer? And then that would depend on the level of um, aggressiveness were the type of options that you want to present to that customer. You could also look at ongoing billing. So maybe that's you know cycle two, three, four, five. Uh, a customer has been receiving the product. Um, maybe they have a higher likelihood of, of seeing more value there, which is why they've stayed around and they've already seen a number of billings. So you'd want to communicate differently with those types of customers uh, as well. Um, another real big key here is uh, understanding your customers and understanding why they're interacting with you. So you're taking a look at these different attributes for these different types of customers. Proactively present, um, you know, what they're looking to do. Um, you know, if uh, there's a particular customer set uh, that has a very high likelihood of canceling, you know, we've associated that with customers that are within their trial period. Uh, these customers obviously understand the terms, they, they read it, they uh, are playing by the rules, they're trying to get something for free. So you might say something along the lines of, look, if you're, lo if you're looking to, to manage your account or if you're looking for a cancellation option, uh, we could help facilitate that. They'd say, wow, okay, that's great. They know who I am, they know what I want to do. 
they're actually more willing to take a sage sale. And you could reference something along the lines of, well, I understand that you want to cancel. However, most customers have had the best experience in um, using our products over an extended time period, over 60 days. So that presents an opportunity to get the customer to keep the product, maybe for a discount, or can even present an opportunity for you to ship an additional uh, bottle um, out to the customer to get them to that 60-day mark, and you, and you can incorporate um, a discount around that. So kind of in a nutshell, personalizing the messaging, understanding the characteristics of your customers and speaking specific to each of those characteristics, um, and then split testing within that so you could determine exactly how you're able to move the needle both on chargebacks and customer lifetime value. Great. Uh, we have a question from Craig. Uh, what are good, good customer service strategies to reduce chargebacks? Walter? Um, sure. So, um, you know, one of the examples I uh, highlighted in uh, the last question was, um, you know, hey, you're trying the product, you have a 30-day supply, best results are right around that 60-day mark, you know, let us ship you an additional bottle, right, you know, for some sort of discount. Um, there are a variety of options that you can use within customer service to really fulfill your value proposition and communicate that you value your relationship with your customer and you want to take care of them. So uh, very commonly that involves some sort of discount uh, promotion or incentive. So if there's a customer that's within their trial period and they haven't been billed but they need to maybe return the product in order to complete the cancellation, you could offer maybe a one-time save sale. So along the lines of, I understand that you want to cancel. However, rather than having you go through the hassle of returning the product and uh, making sure that it's here within 15 days in certain condition, et cetera, why don't you keep the product? And because we value you as a customer and we want you to think of us and purchase from us, when the need arises, we'd like to give you a 30% discount. Um, in doing, in presenting that type of option and by presenting customers different communication avenues, again, you will be rewarded for that. Um, some other examples, you know, include a, uh, a discounted recurring billing option for those recurring billing advertisers. And you could play around with the types of discounts uh, that you want to offer. You could also offer some sort of promotions or incentives or a free bottle. Uh, you know, if you stay on, uh, there are a variety of things that you could do, again, uh, to communicate, we value the relationship with you, the end consumer, and we want this experience to be a positive one for you. Um, and at the end of the day, it's very important to split test different methodologies and looking at different types of customers. So again, you can move the needle uh, both on bringing chargebacks down and customer lifetime value. All right. Uh, we have a question from Michael. Is it possible to win chargebacks that have been coded as fraud? Um, ben, Jared, do you guys want to take this one? Yeah, thanks, Kirill. So um, in short, the, the answer would be yes. Um, it's entirely possible to win chargebacks that have been coded as fraud um, incorrectly. Um, the long answer, and I think the reason why many merchants don't, and even you know, other chargeback experts don't, is that they're much harder to win than other cases. But, but you should absolutely defend yourself against incorrect claims made against you. Now, I could call my issuer 
Um, I could call Chase now, having not recognized a charge on my statement, maybe because the descriptor's wrong. Maybe the descriptor's mislabeled. I don't recognize the, the characters on my statement. I call my bank. I say, I don't recognize this charge that's on my statement. I don't remember making it. I don't think I made this transaction. Chase are probably then going to file a chargeback for fraud or transaction not authorized or transaction not recognized. It might be coded as 83 or 37. You know, that's a legitimate transaction that I haven't recognized because I don't recognize what's on my statement, but it's not fraud. So you should absolutely dispute, you know, that scenario. Um, I think the reason merchants don't is one of two things. Um, either they've developed a standard response across maybe all reason codes to, uh, to dispute chargebacks, maybe using some sort of automation to dispute each case. Um, and the fraud reason code cases can't be won with the same information as other cases. They require more compelling evidence to win that maybe isn't available through any sort of automated platform they've built or any sort of template that they're using. Or they have an in-house team that's doing the disputes for them. And most in-house teams, you know, they, they have lots of things possibly that they're focused on. Some of the time it's not just that chargeback representment is their only activity. Maybe they're doing some fraud scoring. Maybe they're doing some other accounting function. Maybe they're in sales audit and that sort of thing. So they're never going to become, or never should they want to become, real chargeback experts as there are far more productive and, and income-yielding activities that they could focus on. So I think that's probably the two key reasons why people don't and why companies don't, but, but absolutely they are winnable and any incorrect claims made against you through the chargeback cycle should be disputed. All right, great. Uh, we have a question from Teresa. Is there certain information that we should be storing in order to dispute chargebacks well? Um, I'm not, not really sure who the best person to answer this, but maybe you guys can, can team up on this one. Yeah, so I, I think one of the first things is obviously using a CRM or an order management system that uh, stores pertinent information uh, to the customer's history, you know, their, their life cycle with you, if you like. Uh, that's an essential component in your ability to then dispute that chargeback correctly. Um, you have to be able to dispute it in effectively. Um, you have to be able to do it in a, in a timely manner and also in a, in a very compelling way in order to, to reverse the case. So you want to make sure that there's consistency in how the customer's handled. You want to have clear customer service policies and that any detail related to any sort of interaction with the customer, especially in a digital goods environment, post-purchase taking place is logged correctly. Um, Walter, maybe, maybe you've got some, some insight into how RevGuard uh, integrates with some of the, you know, the more well-known CRMs or the, the CRMs that are popularly used um, in terms of how you populate that information. Uh, sure. Yeah. Thank you, Ben. And uh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, you'll always need live agents um, to handle a certain segment of customers, right? But in doing so, there are inherent risks, which um, I think all merchants have experienced. Um, a lot of agents are provided a monetary um, incentive to save customers, and some agents are more aggressive than others. So it's always a moving target, and you never really know how aggressive a particular agent is getting. Uh, you also don't know um, what the likelihood or tendencies are of certain agents from going off script or potentially misrepresenting an offer, misrepresenting a save, uh, some of those types of things. Um, when offers are misrepresented, 
things are not clearly communicated to the customer in that live agent environment, uh, it provides a risk for, for chargebacks. So again, by uh, supplementing the live agent environment with technology, you could really make sure that the messaging is consistent. And along those same lines, uh, the notes that are entered within the CRM is uh, you know, really, really critical there. So by, by leveraging technology, you can make sure that the notes for certain customer actions are completed and updated in a uniform way. And you could say, or you know, take a look at the notes and say, all right, well, if they hit this particular technology, you know with absolute certainty, word by word, what the customer heard when they had, a, had accepted a safe sale. So a lot of the risk is off the table on the live agent environment where again, there could be the tendency of uh, a rep missing a particular keyword or phrase that is really important for compliance. Um, and also if you're relying on, on agents to enter notes, uh, sometimes things can be omitted. Um, so again, leveraging technology, standardizing, making things consistent and uniform will really go a long way and um, you know, provides a lot more certainty and uh, confidence around it and notes and information within the CRM.